Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. So Podgo is the easiest way for you to, to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space. So you always know how much you're going to get, right? So apply today, you become a member and you can start reading ads, you know, as soon as you get accepted and you get paid, you get paid a flat rate within 24 hours. So make sure to check out podgo.co, that's P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And uh, be sure to add our podcast in the how did you hear about Podgo section of the application. It's the language of the universe. But I don't understand it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we welcome you back to episode number 46, where today we are going to be talking about the million dollar problems more commonly known as the millennium problems now for the viewers on youtube out there you might notice i've got new scenery behind me i'm not at my house which is usually where i am and i'm downtown (laughs) right now so not that anyone asked or cares but i'm still saying it so here i am so just before we get into the podcast as always um as we said last week, we did in fact hit 50,000 downloads during Amazing. the course of this week. So thank you very much. And we also hit 4,000 Spotify followers. What? Thank you very much. That's crazy. And we are already at 4,160. So, wow. you know, we might we might hit 5,000, you know, sooner than we think. Mm-hmm. So thank you to everybody. Thank you, everybody, for the follows. And mm-hmm, uh, absolutely, yeah. Also, s- starting this episode right now, uh, we are going to be picking a comment either on YouTube or Instagram or Apple or anything. If you guys, you know, if you guys do enjoy the podcast, mm-hmm. make sure to leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts because it's a very good way to push the podcast through the algorithm to meet or to to reach new listeners so Mm -hmm. if you do enjoy the podcast make sure to leave a comment and we might pick it and read it out give you a little shout out absolutely the beginning of a podcast also uh we also post regular updates and everything that's happening with the podcast on instagram so make sure you check it out and if you comment something cool on there it is also a potential candidate for a shout out so yeah just, just keep commenting is basically the is, is the moral. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So this week's comment of the week okay, goes to Utkarsh, Utkarsh Kohli. says, I can't believe how much y'all have progressed, been here since day one. Oh. So thank you so much for that nice comment. Um, we absolutely appreciate you being, you know, a listener from way back when we started, which wasn't mm-hmm. that long ago. <laughs> That's um, true. How long ago I still remember. Maybe like started in like May. Eight months? Yeah. Wait, eight? what are we in? Yeah, we're in like yeah eight months. Yeah. We're, we're yeah. end of January. I still remember one of our very first videos on YouTube. Um, it was just like obviously no video. It was just it was just a picture. It was back in those days, you know? And um, he commented on one of them saying, you know, I love your podcast. And, and that was, I think, if I'm not mistaken, one of the very first comments that we had got like ever as the math and physics podcast. <laughs> and I think that was a really nice thing. So thank you, Utkarsh, for supporting us. 
and continuing to watch. Yeah. Yeah, definitely let us know, like, what is your favorite episode up to date mm-hmm. since you've been listening since the very beginning? What, which one was your, your favorite? And uh, we'll get back to you on so that. So many to pick from. Oh, my. <laughs> There's 46 now Ooh, to, absolutely. <laughs> to pick from. Um, so other than that, yeah, definitely. If you want a shout out, leave, leave a comment. Leave a like, leave a follow, go follow us on Instagram, you know? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be so weird if you subscribe to us on YouTube right now? <laughs> that would, nah, what, uh, no way, no way. I'm pretty that, sure he's not. He's definitely, he's definitely the OG <laughs> subscriber. He's definitely. No, I'm just, I'm just talking about the, like, just someone listening, you know? Oh, just oh, the listening. generic listener. Whoa. Like, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be so, mm. so quirky if you just hit that subscribe button just right like, now? I mean, Anyways. it's so red. It's so big. Just, wow, that sounded weird. <laughs> But just, just just go Anyways. click it <laughs> let's just start let's Anyways. just start let's just get into it let's just get into getting into the one million dollar problems no this is not clickbait mm-hmm. this is actually for real if you've never heard of the millennium prize problems there are seven problems well there were seven problems now there's only six because yeah. one of them has actually been solved um all each of these problems if you solve them, you get a million dollars. So you know, so easy. Why not? Why not take a look at them? See if maybe you have a little intuition, which mm-hmm. I highly, highly doubt there is any intuition that, <laughs> uh, that can be used to solve these problems. It, I think it's more experience as well mm-hmm. as creativity, mm-hmm. as well as just a lot of a lot of wisdom in the mathematical world. Mm-hmm. These so so these millennium problems are not. I mean, even though they're known for, you know, giving out that million dollars, it, it, it basically started out in the 2000s. It, it started out in 2000, May 24th, 2000. And it was started by the Clay Institute or Clay Math Institute, the CMI. And it's, it's, it's kind of a part of Cambridge University. And they're like, hey, there are these problems from the 20th century that no one has solved yet. So now we are coming into a new millennia. So why don't we bring these problems to our millennium. new millennia and call them the millennium problems? It's millennium. Sorry? You said millennia. Millennium yeah, is because, no, plural. No, it's, it's a new millennia, but... No, a new is, millennium. Isn't millennia millennium. The, the plural of millennium? Yeah, a new millennium. We're coming into a new millennium. A anyway, new millennium. This is not I a guess, grammar podcast. Yeah, <laughs> Just continue. True, true. Okay. <laughs> okay, yeah. Coming into a new millennium. We have the millennium problems. And I think the goal of a lot of the people who are trying to solve them isn't really the million dollars, but it's more it's more breaking what we know about math and science, mainly math. Even though this is a lot of uh, problems relating to physics and some with computer science, it's all kind of um, it's all rooted heavily in mathematics and they all regard, you know, proving it basically most of these problems have a similar idea. Most of them have solutions, maybe that we know they exist, but we just don't know how to prove the problem itself. The theory itself is unprovable as of today. So we're just going to be talking about, I guess, the different problems uh, and I guess what you could do to get that million dollars because that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. And by the way, just to, just to tell you guys that are listening right now, we actually recorded this like introduction to the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's like ten minute introduction, it's and my fault. Uh, like Rayhan's 
computer just glitched out and it just deleted the audio file so yes i'm so if you want um like let us know i let's let's actually post that introduction on our instagram we'll post it as kind of like a blooper and if you guys want to see that introduction uh you can head on over to our instagram and uh and see that so okay sure i mean we we can do that 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 would be fun that would be fun yeah so to introduce uh the problems here I'll start with the first one, which is the one that's already been solved. And okay. it's the one of them that I'm going to cover today. And by the way, we're not going to talk about all of them because there's a lot of stuff to go over. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we are limiting the podcast to around one hour just to keep it nice and, you know, concise. But we can, of course, yeah. come back. Might Exactly. I was just going to say we might have a part two, depending on how, if you guys, you know, mm-hmm. like this, if you guys want us to continue into the problems, it would be great. But I think, I mean, for this podcast, I think we've kind of like carefully selected which problems we want to talk about because, you know, we can talk about them. To be honest, though, before Mm -hmm. we actually do get into it, big disclaimer, big, big disclaimer, we are not versed in any of these topics (laughs) whatsoever. Absolutely. These are very, very, very complicated topics in math and science that we have no, you know... What's the word for it? Like, we don't have enough standing to actually talk about it. But because, obviously, you know, we've read enough about it, I guess we can just have a discussion, which is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing that we are going to tell you that's, th- that you should hold up to us, you know? Like, don't quote <laughs> us or anything like that. Because I'm just scared, you know? Like, some of these problems are really complicated to understand. So imagine how complicated it is to explain. You know, because if you don't even understand it, how are you going to explain it? So we are trying to kind of understand it and kind of explain it, you know? So it's kind of like a mix between the two. So we have to kind of find that middle ground. And yeah, big disclaimer. <laughs> so yeah. Um, so the first one I'm going to talk about is the Poincaré conjecture. And Ooh. so this was cool. solved um, by Grigory Perelman. And um, this... Uh, this conjecture is about, um, it's like a top, topological kind of uh, situation here. And okay. I'm going to tell you guys the, um, what's it called? The, like the statement of the, Let's hear it. Let's hear of it. the problem here. So every simply connected closed three manifold is homeomorphic to the three sphere. Okay. Wow. So <laughs> there wow, are a lot, a lot of words in there. Wow. There are a lot of words in that claim wow. and each one of them plays a key role into like what it's actually saying. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is this is a a very uh, good example um of how mathematics and English is very hard or not just English, but mathematics and language is very hard to mm-hmm. blend together because some words in that are put into language you know, intuitively don't really translate to what it means mathematically. And so you have these words like simply connected that, you know, it sounds like, sounds pretty simple. You think, oh, (laughs) yeah, it's simply connected. connected. But it has, it has a rigorous mathematical definition that says this is simply connected and that is not, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to actually talk about this problem in a little bit, but, you know, it's it's about uh it's about you know uh topological spaces we're actually gonna be 
we're actually going to be getting into the problems on a little deeper level in a bit. But I think before we uh, do that, as we were talking, we're just going to kind of talk about all seven, just brief disc- uh, description of all seven. And then we go into like a, like a deeper discussion on the ones we chose, you know? So mm-hmm. talking about another millennium problem, the one now, now, now we're coming to the ones that haven't been solved. The Yang Mills equation. So the Yang Mills equation or the Yang Mills mass gap equation is a theory that is used in quantum mechanics. And this is where kind of in the beginning where I said, you know, how a lot of these problems, they have solutions because we are currently using these problems. It's simply that we don't know how to solve or prove that these problems are true. And again, that that statement might, (laughs) might not have made much sense, but I'll explain it. So there's a theory known as the Yang-Mills theory, and that basically describes a certain uh, property, a certain aspect in quantum mechanics. And that theory kind of relates how all these particles and all these forces are working together. The, The idea now is that we already know that this works because we've seen experimental proof, we've used it, and we currently use this theory whenever we talk about quantum chromodynamics. And that's, that's what I'm going to be getting into when I go into the deeper, deeper field. So the idea is we can use this theory in this field of quantum mechanics, but we don't know the mathematical proof behind it. Like, why does it work? We don't know that. So that's the whole thing that we're trying to figure out. The mass gap situation, it's called the Yang-Mills mass gap problem or basically somewhere uh, along those lines and without getting too deep into it it's the idea is to find a lower bound to mass that's the whole thing (laughs) is there a lower bound to uh, the mass of a certain particle because we know that there are some particles that are massless right for example we have the photon we have this uh, particle called the gluon that is also hypothetically uh, and is it is massless So the question is, well, if there are these particles that are massless, is there a lower bound to mass? And I'm going to be getting, again, deeper into it when we talk about it. But that's basically the idea of Yang Mills and mass gap. So, yeah. So next up, we have the Riemann hypothesis. Ooh, that classic. And so, you know, once again, I'm not going to repeat it. This is a hard question, okay? (laughs) Or or a hard problem here. And this is... this. the Riemann hypothesis is related to the Riemann zeta function, mm. which is um, a, a a complex function, right? And basically, the roots of the Riemann zeta function uh, have uh, like negative integer. It, it has negative integer roots and also imaginary complex roots with a real part that is one half. And so, as we explained wow. in our in our types of numbers episode when you have a complex number you have a real part and an imaginary part and so as this as this uh like as what i just said here um the roots when when the zeta function is equal to zero we can have solutions that have a complex part and every single uh complex solution has a real part that is one half and this is related to uh what is it the separation of prime numbers which we should actually talk about prime numbers make an episode this is, about yeah prime numbers, i was i was just thinking about it because that's a really interesting 
Mm-hmm. Prime numbers yeah. themselves, but, I think. I'm Parker and I were talking about this before we started. Prime numbers are so interesting because mm, they're all throughout insane. the number line and they're all spread out, you know, without without a specific pattern. And I guess like the entire or one of the major ideas of the Riemann hypothesis is to find a pattern to the prime numbers. Mm-hmm. And is there a pattern to the prime numbers? That would be that would be amazing. Yeah, wow. that would be absolutely amazing because as some people would know, I guess, um, <laughs> like prime numbers are very rare, mm-hmm. right? They the the higher you go in in the on the number line, the easier it is to find like um, uh, what's it called factors, right? The yeah. easier it is to find factors of numbers, and so the higher you go, the 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 more spaced out these numbers are. But up to date. Turns out there's actually no pattern to find prime numbers. That's and so to actually to actually find prime numbers, there are like supercomputers out there working mm. extremely hard. They just go uh, like, okay, I don't actually know how they do it, but I'm guessing they just go number by number. <laughs> <laughs> just they check go if number it's by number and they and they and they just check all the factors and then until they get to a number and they say, Oh, it doesn't have any other factors except I'm, for one and itself. Boom. I'm pretty sure that is actually how they do it. Cause I, I cause I, th- yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. Like these supercomputers that the, the primary focus is to find prime numbers, you know? And, mm-hmm. and recently, I think this was a number file video where they found some ginormous prime number, like something to the exponent of yeah. something huge. And again, yeah. that was obviously found by a supercomputer. And that's the largest prime number that we know till date. And mm-hmm. again, the interesting thing is, that we have these numbers that go into the millions and billions, if not a lot more than that. And we still haven't been able to find a pattern. I think that's crazy because I don't know. There are a lot of parts of reality. There are a lot of parts of, you know, physics and science that simply make sense. Like, you know, F equals MA, like that makes sense. (laughs) That works. That works for every single object. I mean, you know, except for the extreme cases, it basically works for everything. It makes sense. And it's funny that we have to mention that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, our theory works every single time, <laughs> except for when it doesn't. But, yeah. <laughs> there, there are special cases for sure. There are special cases. But again, the point I was trying to make is that it's so interesting that there are these numbers that, that exist in reality that we can count, we can measure that don't make sense. You know, I, like they just don't make sense. There's no, there's no pattern. There's no relationship between them and everything is kind of just lost. So I think, I think Mm. that's a little, that's a little interesting and weird, but interesting, more interesting for sure. Yeah. Continuing on, we have the very, very famous P versus NP problem. So this is very, this is a very famous problem when it comes to computer science because it's, you know, it's, it's kind of heavily rooted in computer science because it, it bases on algorithms solving certain questions. Here's the, here's the question. P and NP, what do they represent? So P is the list of solution. Wait, wait, let me, let me think about this because it's a little interesting wording that I have to make sure that I get right because one is if an algorithm can verify a certain solution in a given amount of time, 
can that algorithm also find a solution to that problem? So the question is, let's say we've been given, I don't know, some differential equation or some equation, you know, let's not, let's not get complicated, some equation. And we... And it's also, sorry, it's also, it, it's, can it find a solution to that problem as fast yeah, as it can check? Exactly. As, yeah, that, that's the whole yeah. problem, right? No, but also that is a subset of the problem, but there is also the majority of it where it's like, there are some out, there are some solutions that can be verified, but can't be be uh be explicitly got from the problem itself and that's the whole question of p versus np so p represents the solutions that can be verified np represents the solutions that you explicitly you know solve for so let's say again you have this equation and you have a solution x equals five you plug it in and it works so if that works can you find x equals 5 in the same amount of time that you plugged in x equals 5 and solved the equation? That's the whole P versus NP. And a lot of people are... Ba so basically, the main question is P and NP or P and not NP. So what that basically, what that means is, are there solutions? And this is what a lot of people think, that there are solutions that can be verified but cannot be solved. And that is the common thought right now. And, and again, no one's actually mm -hmm. solved this problem. And again, very, very heavily related to computer science because it's all about how algorithms and how fast these algorithms can solve you know, certain equations. So I think this is yeah. definitely a problem worth discussing a lot more on, but unfortunately not included in our top four today. So yeah, continuing very on. Very interesting. But uh, I, I do think we should keep this introduction a little bit more brief. <laughs> um, wow, we are already to... twenty minutes in. Yeah. There's no uh, way. So just let's just let's just blow through the the, the, the remaining ones. So we have the Hodge conjecture, which mm -hmm. okay, I'm 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 <laughs> going to humble myself real quick and just say I, it is it is so hard to explain that the Wikipedia page says quote. The problem is difficult to explain using words, right? <laughs> so, th so this funny. problem, this problem is related to algebraic geometry and algebraic topology, and you know, it is uh, <coughs> it's not very connected to any real like application that you can relate to. It's it's very mathematical and very difficult. So mm -hmm. I'm just gonna leave it at that. Mm -hmm. And uh, next one is Navier-Stokes equations. And this I'm actually going to be, this is one of the topics that I'm kind of dedicated to talk about. So I guess I can give a very small introduction. And we have spoken about this for sure with Tom Rock's math. If you guys have watched that episode, amazing episode. And his doctoral thesis actually depended, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it definitely did on the Navier-Stokes equations. Why, you might ask. And what are the Navier-Stokes equations, you might ask. The Navier-Stokes equations are equations that model the motion of fluids. And these equations work for every single fluid you can possibly think of. Ketchup, water, uh, <laughs> gas, uh, fluorine, anything that you can possibly think of that flows, the Navier-Stokes equations model it. And again, the whole question about, well, if it's simply a model why is it a millennium problem? Because again, again, I'm going to be getting into exactly why it's, it's unsolvable. But the, just a quick snippet, 
in two dimensions, the Navier-Stokes equations has solutions, has unique solutions that can be found. In three dimensions, however, the third dimension blows up to infinity. What that means is there is no solution for the flow, i.e. But when... only in specific cases. Sorry? Only in specific cases. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, it, I mean, it's right. in specific it, cases. The way but... you said it, the way you said it was like, Every time you add a third dimension, it blows up to it. Okay, sorry, sorry. No, but what I'm trying to say is if you are trying to find a unique solution for every possible input, you will not be able to do that because it blows up to infinity. What blows up to infinity, you might ask? Well, what the Navier-Stokes equation states in three dimensions is at certain locations, and I'm going to get further in depth to what I mean by certain locations. In certain locations, certain intervals, the velocity of a fluid is infinity. Now, obviously, that, that makes no sense, but that's what the Navier-Stokes equation says. So, again, that's the whole question, that there's obviously some kind of either the Navier-Stokes equation simply does not work for some cases, or we have to find a way around it. And we are currently finding ways around it, and that's what we can continue on to talk about. So, yeah, right. coming on the, the very um, last one. Yeah, just to be super, super brief here, because I do want to actually talk about these problems again. Yeah, I really so do. The, I really the, do. The Birch and Swinnerton-Dyer conjecture, okay? So this conjecture deals with certain types of equations. So more specifically, those defining elliptic curves mm -hmm. over the rational numbers, mm -hmm. okay? We're not going to be talking about this problem today. But let us know, you know, drop a comment telling us mm -hmm. uh, if you want to hear about the problems with that we are not actually going to talk about today. And so, mm -hmm. so I'm going to start with, uh, I'm going to start with Poincaré's conjecture. The first and only solved millennium problem. Let's get it. Let's that get is, it. That is correct. So as I said before, the statement is that every simply connected, closed, three manifold is homeomorphic to the three sphere. That is insanely so, complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2002, Grigory Perelman, he is a Russian mathematician, posted a solution to this conjecture online. He just put it online and then everyone was like, oh, well, wait, damn, he didn't like take it a... to the Clay Math Institute or anything. He just posted it. Abs absolutely not. This guy he posted what? the solution online. And everyone was like, damn, this is, uh, this is pretty interesting. That's crazy. <laughs> and so in 2006, he was awarded with a field medal, which is worth $15,000 Canadian. Right? Wow. Uh, like, that's the award. And he refused to take the field medal. Wow. Right? So Wait, he he no, no, no. 15... He didn't refuse the field medal. He refused the, the money. No, 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 no. He refused the prize, right? Wait, he, he refused the medal? He didn't refuse so he the just, medal. Okay, I, I don't know. But he, it's, like, all I know is that he refused it. Like, he refused the money, and I'm pretty sure the medal. Like, Wow. He, anyways, the, 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 the point is, that's, that's not important. Right? Okay, okay. Continue, the, the, sorry. the important part is that in 2010, he was awarded the Millennium Prize for having solved Poincaré's conjecture. Wow. Wow. And he refused the million wow. dollars. <laughs> wow. Wow. He refused the million dollars. He declined oh my. it. 
the the institute was like, oh my god, here is one million dollars for your absolutely <laughs> insane uh, contribution to the mathematical world, and he's like, nah, I don't. I don't want that. I don't believe this. Uh, wow, so, that's that's either the most humble or stupid thing that this guy's ever done. <laughs> I mean, I think if I were him, I would have just taken it. I mean, it depends, and, right, uh, on how he's living his life. Like, if he's already living, like, a lavish life and, oh, he just solved Poincaré's conjecture, fantastic for you. But, like, I you guess. know, if you're living, like, you know, an average scientist's life, I think a million dollars can really help. But he could have, like accepted it and then donated it yeah why like did instead, he just not accept instead of it? just instead of just not taking that's it. interesting anyways that's really interesting that's just that's that was the drama i was talking about earlier he's just he in total he was offered a million dollars or a million and fifteen thousand dollars wow oh yeah because did not take did not take any of it right? wow so let's get into this problem while being as layman as possible mm-hmm. uh because you know explaining it is uh not very easy but let's let's uh, start with the first word right they say every simply connected dot 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 so what is simply connected and we are talking about like topologi- topolo- to- topology topology <laughs> we're, we're we're talking about topology here. okay so you can you can kind of imagine in your head already like simply connected has to do with like connecting two points mm-hmm. right and simply connected space is path connected and continuously transformable paths so path wow, connected okay. just means that any two points in your space can be connected uh with like a continuous curve so there's no interruptions right for example, if you had like two separated disks, uh, those would not be path connected because if you had one point on one disk, one point on the other, you wouldn't be able to connect it with a continuous curve that is uh, enclosed within that set. Mm-hmm. But anything else, right, that is just one blob is is connected, path connected. But what makes simply connected a little bit more uh, strong than path connected is that it requires that every path between two points be continuously transformable to any other path, right? So an example of something that is not simply connected is a CD with a hole in the middle, mm, right? So you yeah. have like a disc with a hole in the middle. So if you were to have two points on that CD and you, you have to go right around the hole one way, and another path would be to go around the hole the other way, right? And as you can tell, you're not able to transform one of those paths into that other path without, like, skipping over the hole in the middle. And that's not allowed. That would make it, like, a discontinuous transformation. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so that is, uh, that is what uh, simply connected means. Next up, we, we talk about uh, a closed three manifold now little wow. heads up uh rayhan and i have not even touched upon these subjects Mm-mm. in school so no. we are we are very unqualified to talk about <laughs> this so this is why we rely on uh, wikipedia.ca or unqualified that was the word i was looking for in the very beginning <laughs> when i was trying to say we didn't have the standard unqualified <laughs> okay yeah continue yeah 
Continue. unqualified. Um, so as uh, Wikipedia puts it, three manifold is a space that looks locally like Euclidean three-dimensional space. And here's a little example that is very relatable, I think. So imagine um, that you are standing on the earth. Very relatable, right? Okay. As we said in uh, a previous episode, it looks flat, right? It looks like it's uh, like it's Euclidean, for example. And you, Euclidean has like an actual definition, but just to be uh, relaxed on these definitions, mm-hmm. we'll just say it's nice. You know, mm-hmm. like parallel lines are parallel. Everything works out perfectly. But as you know, if you take two parallel lines on a sphere, they will eventually intersect, which makes no sense because parallel lines are parallel. Well, it, it's only across. It's not across the. It's only across one of the axes, though, right? Because across yeah. across the equator, like parallel to the equator, if you have two lines. Yeah, if you have two yeah, lines, that, they're never that, gonna. That, that doesn't count, though. We're, oh, we're, so you're we're, just, we're talking you're just about, talking. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We're, t- we're talking about like, uh, anyways, like, like perpendicular to, to the equator, kind of going. Okay. Like, like the yeah, longitudinal but that's not lines. Allowed in this, this is not allowed in this situation. But uh, okay, I'm not gonna, okay. I'm not gonna explain all that. Let's not so, go too deep. Okay. So what what I'm trying to say here is that, yeah, locally. If, if you zoom in very close to your position, it looks like those parallel lines will always remain parallel. And it looks like your geometry is totally Euclidean and all that stuff. But when you zoom out, turns out, oh, this is like a curved, this is curved geometry that mm-hmm. we're working with. And it's not just perfect. And to relate that to three-dimensional space, you know, our space in the, our, or where we are in the universe looks Euclidean, right? It looks like if you were to send two parallel, two parallel lines straight out into the universe, they would never intersect. So mm-hmm. locally, everything looks perfectly fine. But what if you were able to zoom out incredibly far and you were able to see that, in fact, if you were to go in a straight line for long enough, eventually you would come back to your original position from behind, right? Like the, 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 it, it's like a, a three-dimensional like hypersphere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like for example, as I talked about the, uh, the, the, the ball, if you were to go straight in one direction, you would eventually come back to your initial position. Uh, but if you were to zoom in very, very close, it, it looks like you're just walking in a single direction, like, like out into mm-hmm. infinity right and then coming back to the three-dimensional universe you know what if our universe right now is in this shape that if you were to go straight in one direction you pull up behind you behind it your same anyways all that so so basically that's a three manifold is what you're saying yeah it's it's a space that looks euclidean locally oh that's what uh okay that's what Wikipedia says. The example, <laughs> was, Wikipedia the example says. was my own. <laughs> the example was mine, but that's what Wikipedia says. Um, so yeah, the next uh, the next section was uh, homeomorphic, and I took a little. I took some notes. These are my own notes here, and it says uh, I said that homeomorphism is a continuous mapping that preserves all topological properties of a given space. 
let's just give a quick example and move on before things get a little convoluted. Mm-hmm. The classic donut mug example. A- right? <laughs> Mathematicians can't tell the difference between a donut and a mug. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason is because a donut has a hole in the middle, right? And people may think that a mug has two holes because of the handle and the cup. But in fact, the cup section is not a hole. You could you could continuously morph that coffee cup into the shape of a torus, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's a donut. And so, yeah, and so that is that the whole the homeomorphism is that continuous map that can shape uh, that can that can shape uh, that cup into a donut, and it preserves all the topological properties. Uh, meaning that it doesn't add or remove any holes, for example. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that's that's pretty much like all of the sections of uh, of the Poincaré conjecture mm-hmm. that I wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, the proof is uh, not very accessible to people like you and I. Like you can look at it, but I'm saying like in terms of understanding, it's not very uh, not very easy to read. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll pass it off to you. Right? Yeah, so I'm looking at the time, and uh, I think we might have to extend this a little bit, a little bit extra, because we do really want to talk. I I do really want to talk about these these problems. And first up, I want to talk about quantum mechanics. So let's talk about the Yang Mills existence and mass gap. So I, w- I already kind of gave the small introduction about about the Yang Mills theory and the idea behind yang mills existence and mass gap let's go for it so there's something very commonly known what we or at least as i said what's used to describe quantum mechanics as the yang mills theory now this theory is specifically used in a field of quantum mechanics known as quantum chromodynamics what is quantum chromodynamics you might ask so it sounds weird. Chromo might be like, ah, oh, it doesn't mean something with color. You are correct. So interestingly <laughs> enough, I know it doesn't make any sense. Thanks, Ray. <laughs> this, this actually does it, but I guess, I guess this is what they just called it. Scientists, when they, when they, I guess not figured out, but when they started to notice that there is this force that binds things smaller than protons together. Now, what I'm talking about are these subatomic fundamental particles known as quarks. So quarks are bounded to other quarks by something known as the strong nuclear force, right? And this is known as the color force. I don't know why, though. Like, where does color come from? I, I'm not too sure. No but idea. But anyway, this is where quantum chromodynamics comes in and kind of relates this strong nuclear force to what's what they call the color force. And the idea of Yang Mills's theory is to uh, not only predict, but also it's basically a theory of quantum mechanics that shows you how the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force, how all of them interact together with these particles. Now, here's the interesting thing. Now, here's the mass gap part, right? Because a big part of this problem, the Yang Mills existence and mass gap is the mass gap part. So there are two major, not only, major streams of quantum mechanics. There's quantum electrodynamics, and then, as I stated, there's quantum chromodynamics. 
I don't believe there are others. I'm not entirely sure, but quantum electrodynamics deals with oh, it deals with photons. Those we know are massless. Quantum electrodynamics also deals primarily with gluons a little bit. And these gluons, I know they're all just foreign words. These gluons are the particles that carry the strong nuclear force. And wow, that's crazy. So the idea behind this, behind this theory is forgetting photons and gluons, because those are the massless particles, right? Forgetting those. If we're relating the strong nuclear force, right? The strong nuclear force is in almost every single, you know, subatomic particle, like a proton, a neutron, not an electron, but almost all particles contain the strong nuclear force, right? Is it is the strong nuclear force also what keeps protons and neutrons together? Like in the like in a in a nucleon? In the nucleus, um, yeah. I think because see, electrostatic. I thought that's what the strong force was. No, primarily the strong. Because see, this is a big. This is okay. Little sidetrack, but a lot of people think you know the Higgs boson gives particles mass, right? And that's kind of a common theory. That's actually not very true because the Higgs boson gives a particle only like ten percent of its mass. The rest ninety percent comes from the energy of the strong nuclear force. So the strong nuclear force has so much energy. Remember, energy and mass are equivalent. That that basically translates into the mass of the particle. So the majority of the mass of any particle comes from the strong nuclear force, right? I'm not I'm not entirely sure because I'm thinking it wouldn't really work with the electrostatic force, right? Because a neutron is neutral, so they wouldn't really attract. I'm assuming it might be with the gluon. We're not again big disclaimer here. <laughs> not too sure about how they're together but uh, but again strong nuclear force primarily with these quarks inside of these subatomic particles we so, should get a uh, we should get a nuclear physicist we really should on the podcast <laughs> to be honest next time we have like an interview or like a guest that has any knowledge on this stuff i think we can definitely go into a very interesting conversation because this particular sure. problem out of the seven, I think is really interesting because it's, I think it's the only one on quantum mechanics and it's the one that, as I said, it works. We use it. It's just that we don't know why it works. So let me again, uh, continue to explain. So the idea is again, there is a zero level energy state, which is more commonly known as the vacuum, right? There's a zero energy. A, an idea of this theory, another way to rephrase it instead of that mass gap in a little more complicated way, is that any state of any particle that is non-zero, like a non-vacuum state of any particle or of any system, must the, like the energy of that system must be greater than the energy in a vacuum plus some constant. Now you must be like, okay, well that's kind of obvious. Because the, the vacuum state will obviously be less than some higher energy state, right? That's the entire definition of a higher energy state, that it has more energy. The, the interesting part is that there are a few particles where their energy is not high enough. So even though their first, their first energy level is higher than the vacuum state, their mass, the mass difference between the zero state and the first state is arbitrarily small. 
And if this occurs and this is not finitely measurable, then there is kind of like a problem with this theory. So the mass gap basically states that there is, in fact, a gap in the mass between the zero energy level and the first energy level. So a system in the zero energy level will have less mass than a system in a higher energy level. Obviously, I'm breaking it down to the simplest possible words. It's a lot more complicated than this. But this is kind of like a way to, I guess, kind of understand it in a, in a simple way. You know, because mass gap doesn't like it just sounds like, OK, there's a difference in mass. But that is actually very, very fundamental to quantum mechanics, because there are a lot of particles that have some mass that are traveling, you know, at the speed of light or near the speed of light. And people are wondering, well, is this mass arbitrarily small or can we measure it? That's the whole question. Right. So, again, we use this on a daily basis, well, not Parker and I, but scientists <laughs> use this on a daily basis in quantum chromodynamics. It's a very popular theory. I think we should probably link all the, I guess, the Wikipedia articles or whatever articles well, down in the description. Actually, it's a very the, interesting the official, read. It's a very interesting read. The official description of the problems are on claymath.org, which is the that is, official mm -hmm. website for uh, the Clay Maths Institute, where they probably do have, the best one. Like yeah. the the they have the official description as well as the status of the problems right now and also related links to each problem like like lectures or explanations or whatever as well as if you want to try to solve it they have the rules mm -hmm. for solving this so you can't just write anything on a piece of paper and say this is in fact a solution mm -hmm. to the millennium problem they do have rules which yeah th there know, are can... certain you know like ways to solve it and there are certain things that they are in fact looking for because remember all of these problems that we're talking about today like they they do not have like again the point isn't the money i think that's a very in uh, like important point the point is breaking breaking what we know about science because if if we can solve something like the yang mills mass gap problem it would revolutionize how we think about quantum mechanics again mm -hmm. it's not going to change your life it's not going to change my life but it will change how science progresses and i think that mm -hmm. is i guess i mean that's 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 what the that's what our podcast is trying to do right progress science yeah and these these problems also don't have definite answers that mm -hmm. we're looking for right because we're looking for a proof yeah and you know it, it is stated in the rules but for some of these problems a proof can just be like some like general uh demonstration mm -hmm. of how these like statements are are true and there, there is like a very specific rule <laughs> mm -hmm. as to what will be accepted and what will not. But it's not like you don't have to provide like, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to like, you don't have to provide like an actual solution or whatever. Like, it, it's not like solving a, an equation. You know? No, no, like, absolutely not. It's, you're, it's a lot harder. <laughs> it's a lot harder than yeah, that. Yeah, because you're actually that. proving that the thing even exists. Right. So, right. so one might have the question now, you might be wondering, sitting at home watching this podcast, well, how can I solve the Yang Mills existence and mass gap problem? Well, 
the solution to this problem will provide us with insights on how subatomic particles form. And that, as I said, revolutionize quantum mechanics. Because understanding why there's this fundamental mass gap between these subatomic particles, between these fundamental particles, will provide us with insights and more descriptions into understanding, again, why these particles have mass and why some of them don't. And that right there will already have provided us, you know, information on how these things are forming. And I think that's, I think that's a really important thing. I do want to leave this problem with the, with, with the thing that I started with. The basic idea is to find a lower bound to mass, right? That's, that's, that's one of the main ideas. One of us, like a simple way to put it is to find a lower bound in quantum chromodynamics again. So we're not talking about the massless particles. We're trying to find, is there an amount of mass that is not arbitrarily small, that is finitely measurable that we can say, okay, it's different from the zero energy state. That's, that's basically the idea. Right. Mm -hmm. Very well explained. Thank you. <laughs> so, do you do we want to talk about the? Oh, Navier I really Stokes do. I re oh no, we're already <laughs> fifty minutes in. We oh can, no, I was so it. excited to talk about the Navier-Stokes equations. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I was so actually leaving this can... for the end, like you know, save the best for last kind of situation, and <laughs> turns out we don't have enough time. I well, think we can. We can I still we talk can. about them. I think we can talk so, about it. The Navier-Stokes <coughs> equations oh, right, are a set, set of man. equations, and they pertain to the motion of fluids. Mm -hmm. Now, let's get really elementary in here. Okay. A fluid is anything that flows, a.k.a. a gas or a liquid. Some solids, right? too. Take that. Like, like glaciers, for example, like they have motions of flowing. Like if, if, if you see like a gr glacier mm. falling, it will follow a path. And you know, a very, a very mm. common description of fluids is that it, it fits its container, right? Like water will kind of fit the level of glass kind of thing and a gas will fill up its entire container. So the idea is that a solid, much like a glacier, like I guess a glacier, you can think of it as at the end of the day, it is, it is liquid, but a big part of it, a glacier falling down. You don't really expect it to conform to certain levels in the container, but it does, right? So there, there are even some certain scenarios. Yeah, continue. I mean, I think that has more to do with like friction than it being a fluid, right? Because if, if it's okay, just it's not like, a fluid. What I meant to say, it it flows. It's not a fluid. Okay. It's not solid. Is not solids are not. Okay. I don't. Yeah, solids are not fluids. I respect no. that. Yeah, yeah. I respect that. Okay. <laughs> and so I just wanted to say that in within fluid dynamics, what you and I have seen so far is just like the flux of a fluid mm -hmm. and also Bernoulli's, Bernoulli's law. Principle. Is that what it's Bernoulli's called? Principle. Oh, principle. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's it. Like that's all we've yeah. seen, right? We haven't really personally done a lot because with the thing with fluids is that it gets extremely complicated to the point where there are things that even these equations can't predict. And I, I, I kind of skipping the horse, I like, you know, jumping up here, but an important part about fluids, or especially with air, and this also works with liquids, but you can apparently very obviously tell with air, is turbulence, right? Turbulence is one effect that 
cannot be predicted. It or at least today, at least till what 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 we know today, it cannot be predicted. And obviously, right? Because if you think about it, the entire idea of turbulence is these random particles that are hitting each other and going off in weird ways. Let me give you an example, right? At the corner, at the very edge of a wing, like obviously you probably won't see this from an airplane because you're in the airplane, but if you, like, I don't know, any airplane at the very edge, they have that, what's that thing called? They have that thing, you know, like uh, they have that thing to kind of cut what, through the wind the name is. and you'll be <laughs> able to see at, at the very edge as it's traveling at, you know, whatever, 700 kilometers an hour, you'll see at the very edge, there's a vortex that's forming. And the reason behind that is because all the air that is coming on top and below is all hitting at that one part, at that one point. And at that point, there is no equation, no model solution that can predict what happens <laughs> at that point because of turbulence. Turbulence is the entire idea of random motion. And this is actually mm -hmm. a big problem with the Navier-Stokes equations. So, I mean, like when we, I, I guess we're talking about it now, but like turbulence especially with water too. Like if water waves crash together, where will each and every particle go? Well, we don't know. You know, even if we model each and every particle, there are random motions that sometimes just simply can't be taken into consideration, right? Because we just don't have all that knowledge. So a lot of this, again, Navier-Stokes equation helps, but it doesn't tackle every possible real life scenario, that being turbulence, mm -hmm. right? And for example, one way in which uh, the Navier-Stokes equations do fail is that, let's say you have a corner, right? You, you have water flowing in one direction, mm -hmm. and then it turns on a 90-degree angle. Mm -hmm. And so you can tell that on the outside of that turn, the water particles are going to be you know, going one way, and then turning yeah right? but the closer the closer you get to the inside corner the mm -hmm. faster you have to travel right mm -hmm. because you have to go from from one direction to another direction but it's kind of like uh it's kind of like um like a circular motion mm -hmm. right so um as you're turning you you have a a radius of rotation and obviously the closer you are to that radius but you have the same velocity because all the all the particles are coming along the the, the trajectory in a straight line mm -hmm. at the same velocity. But as they start rotating, the ones on the outside have a larger radius for their rotation, so they will be moving slower than the um, than the ones closer to the corner. But here's the thing: the the uh, particles of water or the molecules of water that are turning directly on that corner will actually have infinite velocity predicted by the in, navier stokes equation yeah yeah predicted exactly. by the navier stokes exactly. equation. of course we already know that that's not possible, <laughs> impossible. Right? we we already know that infinite velocity is not possible mm -hmm. right? you know every time every time you form a corner with water flowing on it you get a black hole forming <laughs> yeah, i think we i think we would we would know about mm -hmm. that by now mm-hmm mm -hmm. Um, the point is that you can have computer solutions, right? Or like computer approximations to these problems. And it just goes by, I think it's like, like iterating the, um, 
the the simulation or whatever they can get like an approximate velocity but it according to the math it should just blow up to infinity and mm -hmm. you would get no solution mm -hmm. so that that's what has to be solved you know mm -hmm. why like why does this happen and is there maybe a correction a Ooh. hypothetical correction Could that be. can be brought to actually account for these these discrepancies i guess mm -hmm. Because I guess there are two ways to answer this question. Either, no, it does not blow up to infinity because of this, this, and this, and this is what happens instead. Or, yes, it does blow up to infinity, and this equation simply does not work in this case. So those are, those are I guess, the two options for solving it. And obviously, you need a very, very you know, good description of where and how you came to that inference. But basically, that's it. So the Navier-Stokes equations again, are equations, but the problem itself is not called the Navier-Stokes equations. The problem itself is called the Navier-Stokes existence and smoothness. Now, you might be wondering, that's a pretty interesting name. What do they really mean? So the idea behind existence and smoothness is existence. There must exist a unique solution for any inputted value. So let's say I have these two equations. So they're actually a list of two equations. The first equation is basically relating how mass is conserved. It kind of relates the velocity of the particle and everything. I don't want to get too deep into the actual, the actual equations themselves, but just talking about them. The first equation kind of states how mass is conserved. And the second equation states how momentum is conserved by using Newton's second law. Right. So you mm -hmm. might be wondering, well, that that obviously is correct. Right. Like it, it makes sense. But again, as Parker stated, like there are some there's some moments, there's some um, there's some locations where this equation simply does not work. So anyways, existence, it, there must exist a unique solution to a set of inputted points. So if I input a certain velocity, a certain trajectory going in a certain way, I should be able to get, you know, certain outputs. And if I change it a little bit, I should not be getting the same output. And the output should be unique to each input. So that's the first, that's the first argument. It must be a unique, like it must be a unique solution if we were to find a solution to this problem. And the second one is smoothness. Now smoothness is very interesting because if let's say I have a bunch of parameters, right? I have a bunch of velocities that are going in a certain direction and I get some certain output. Smoothness basically states if I change one parameter, just infinitesimally, like if I just change it a little bit, it should change the output just by a little bit. Problem is, a lot of times this doesn't happen, right? By changing the input parameter just a little bit, it sometimes blows up the output parameter to proportions that don't make any sense. And that right there is another problem, right? So I guess, I guess the idea to, again, solve the, the, the Navier-Stokes equations would be to show that there is a unique solution for every single possible input. And that unique solution, whatever, whatever is outputted, will not change too much if the input is also changed. So it's also smooth. And that's another important, important part of the equation. And that's why it's so hard because of turbulence, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Turbulence, that's where turbulence comes in, right? And 
this is a like a prime example of chaotic behavior right mm-hmm. because as we said this was during the interview with Paul Kushner on um, atmospheric physics and we were talking about chaotic systems how um if you were to change the initial conditions of let's say a double pendulum just slightly and there are beautiful animations of beautiful. this that you can find on you on YouTube where they show like let's say uh 20 different possible paths mm-hmm. where the the pendulum starts like at the top and each path has a slightly diff uh slightly differing initial condition from the last one mm-hmm. and then you see how these paths start up very circular very nice but you know a few seconds go by and then everything goes crazy everything mm-hmm. goes to chaos mm-hmm. and that's kind of the problem in the Navier-Stokes equations or the the uh, Navier-Stokes existence and smoothness problem mm-hmm. is that you change the initial conditions just a little bit and everything goes crazy. Mm-hmm. So you might be wondering then, um, well, I actually, I, I guess I didn't mention this, but the Navier-Stokes equations is used in almost every single fluid modeling, right? It, it's used in every single case, any, like if let's say we're trying to predict climate change, if we're trying to predict atmospheric changes if we're predicting hurricanes or anything anything that contains a fluid will have the navier stokes that's like kind of step one the first step is solving or figuring out if the if the input you know if it satisfies the navier stokes equations so you might be wondering well if everything you know depends on the navier stokes equations every fluid how can we have that we don't even know a solution exists How, how can it be that it's unsolved Right. So what people do, and this is kind of interesting that I, I mean, after some research today, I found out I never knew this, but apparently what people do is let, instead of taking every single individual particle and every single individual particles, velocity and, you know, direction and momentum and all that stuff, which would basically be impossible to commute, uh, compute all of that data. What, you know, atmospheric modelists or basically anyone that's modeling a fluid, what they would do is the process of averaging. So what that is, is basically they would take, let's say, for example, a, a two kilometer radius of the sea. Instead of looking at every particle in that two kilometer radius, they simply look at the average velocity of that whole two kilometer ball. And then they have, you know, a bunch of, I guess, two kilometer balls. And then it's a lot easier to solve because now we have reduced this billion, billion dollar, I'm sorry, not dollar, um, billion particles system to, let's say, 10 particles, right? Because they're just these balls that we're now trying to average over. So we can use these Navier-Stokes equations on these subsets or on these large, no, not subsets, supersets, on these averaged salute like on these average sets and when we use them they still work they give us values you know our planes Mm -hmm. are flying our rockets are working so it's obviously working like the solutions exist but only when we kind of kind of cheat the system a little bit because averaging Mm -hmm. again is not necessarily the correct way to do it it's simply hey we can't do every single particle because that's really hard so let's just average it out so that's kind of like the, mm. the easy way out is kind of a way to say it. The easy way out is what we use it for. Right, so I do think now is a good time yeah, to for sure. end the podcast. It's already been over an hour. I mean, so as you I can tell, like to... look, look at the outside. Yeah. It just 
<laughs> it was it's, absolutely yeah, bright when to, we uh, began. Super dark. And it's just it's just dark right. It's just it's nighttime right now. It's crazy. So I'd like to uh thank everybody for absolutely. listening to this episode of the podcast. If you have any questions, you can uh, let us know. Any mm-hmm. comments, hit us up on Instagram at math.physics.podcast. Also, check out the uh, TikTok, which is at that exact same at. We haven't, we haven't been at. posting a lot of TikToks this week. Uh, don't worry, Not though. Much. Don't worry, though. I just want to let every... Uh, I mean, if you guys are following our TikToks, then you must be like, where are these guys' TikToks? Don't worry. Just small technical difficulty. We had a we had a <laughs> recent transition between who's editing our video. It went from me to now we have a video editor. So we're still we're still we're still, you know, making making sure everything is in place and everything. So don't worry. TikToks are coming soon. They're gonna be cool. It's just <laughs> it's gonna take a little 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 bit of time. All right. So uh thank you everybody. Make sure to follow the podcast wherever you're listening to this and mm-hmm. uh that is it for us. So yeah. this has been episode number 46 of the math and physics podcast and i'm your host parker and i'm ray and we will see you soon bye guys